Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 30, Pope Caius. Caius. Caius, yes. This is our first episode that we're actually recording in 2019. We took an unexpected break, and uh, we're back. And we're out of our 20s, so are we legit now? I don't know. I don't know how that works. Well, you know what makes us really legit? Hmm. I'm so excited about this, but... Deacon Dad is listening to our podcast now, so... He is. That makes us so legit in my eyes. I'm so excited, because this was a little bit of a secret for a while, but hello, Deacon Dad. We're so glad you're listening and not hating it. (laughs) They're going through it really slowly. They listen to, like, a episode when they do the dishes at night. So mm-hmm. they're working their way through. I love it. It's so funny because my, my parents have listened the whole way through, but you're like, yeah, I don't necessarily know how my parents will react to this. And they love it. So hooray. <laughs> they are at least not upset by it and have said that they will recommend it to their friends that they know like irreverent comedies. <laughs> that makes me even happier because... You know, it's it's good to know that we're reaching a Catholic audience in a way that isn't terrible. They don't hate us. So, fantastic. So, Pope Caius, are you ready for this? Yeah. Gotta see if he starts off our year strong. So, we should just, I guess, jump right into him because we have some recapping to do. And, oh boy. Okay, so, Pope Caius, or Gaius, or Caio, as he's called in some sources, That's getting too close to Caillou. I knew you were going to say that too. Uh, Left it open for you, so. I don't want to mention that bald-headed little brat. I don't. I know you have such a a vitriolic hatred of Caillou, and as somebody who does not have children and barely remembers it from my childhood, I am completely indifferent, so. You know, the hatred of Caillou is just like... It's a part of being a parent. Like, you change diapers, you feed them, you send them to school, you hate Caillou. Well, see, this is initiation from the outside. I mean, maybe I'll have to watch an episode and see what all the fuss is about. (laughs) You might actually break your television. Well, and it's French-Canadian, too, so, like, I'm sorry. We're gonna call him Caius in this episode, because that's how he's mostly known, and it's less close to Caillou, so you won't be filled with blind rage every time I say his name. So he was most likely born in Salona, in the Roman province of Dalmatia, which is modern-day Croatia. So this is new, and this is different, and this is why he will be known as Caius the Dalmatian. Oh, they just went straight there. Okay. He's the Dalmatian. I mean, this is a time period. We're getting into that point where everyone's going to be born in Rome, and it's going to be boring. So when someone is from somewhere else, it's just a little bit exciting. And by the by, Salona, the city he was born in, is currently called Solin, and it's very close to Split, which is about to become incredibly important to the Empire because of the new Emperor Diocletian. Now, since we've mentioned Diocletian, Caius is said to have been from a noble family to a father who's also called Caius, who was somehow actually related to the Emperor Diocletian. We don't know exactly how they're related or how close or it's it's just said that they're they're re- they're related in some way. They're relatives. So 
It's something of note, and it's not impossible because we do know that Diocletian was also born in Dalmatia to, ironically, what's described as a low-ranking family, so Caius could have been from a branch of his family that was higher than the branch that birthed the emperor. Also, but everybody from Dalmatia doesn't know everybody else. Yeah, but considering they're saying that they're born in Dalmatia, both of them, and they're also saying that they're related, I mean, we also don't know if Caius's family being noble is a result of Diocletian becoming the emperor, so his extended family gets elevated. It could have gone either way. Either way, we have a Christian that is somehow related to this emperor, and that makes him at least interesting because he has some early life stuff, so. And, and and before we move on, we also have to say that some sources also credit him as being Illyrian, and, you know, the region of Roman Illyricum would have encapsulated part of Dalmatia, so possible that this could have fit into his cultural identity, but like we discussed with Eleutherius, the Illyrian identity is quite contentious, and they love to claim influential people for their team, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we can't be sure. But if you want to know more about the whole Illyria thing, episode 15 on Eleutherius for more information. But this isn't the only notable association that Caius is wrapped up in. Because there is also a legend, most likely attributed to much later after his death, that he was also related to Saint Susanna, a famous Christian martyr from roughly around this time period, slightly after Caius would have been around. This one's due to a document that was written sometime in the 6th century, 300 years after the time period we're talking about, that described the acts of two brothers called Caius and Gabinus. And these are said to be wealthy, noble Christians who turned their home into a Christian church, and that this home church would later be the site of the Church of Santa Susanna, which would be built above it. Some historians throughout the ages have identified this Caius as the Pope Caius, and the brother Gabinus to be the Gabinus who was the father of St. Susanna. If there's any truth to this jumbly, also-related story, then he would be the uncle of St. Susanna. Okay. So this guy has some some proppy people he can call to his name. So real fast, how did St. Susanna die? Ooh, we are going to talk about that <laughs> in a little bit. You definitely said martyr. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Do you want to make some guesses before we get there? Oh, um, well, because uh, the standard is beheading. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go with something wild, like... Like St. Cecilia? <laughs> no, I want, I want like, exposure. Oh, oh. I wonder if there's any saints that have died by exposure, which, spoilers, means you're wrong, but... <laughs> No, I just wanted to pick something exotic. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. That's that's probably you know what? I know the answer to that. There are there were Jesuit martyrs who who died that way in Japan, so for sure. But the, we we'll get there in time. But we also need to point out that the uh, there are other sources who who argue that this is not true and that the uncle of Susanna, this Caius who's in this saint story was not a pope or even a clergyman, but that he was a Roman governor, which is pretty much the exact opposite at this point. So at the end, who the heck knows? There's also another little strange record that consists of Caius's potential existence. I don't know how to frame this in a way that makes sense because 
there is some evidence or there's some suggestion of Pope Caius during the time of Zephyrinus, which remember is 199 to 217. That's like... He would be so old. He was elected to Pope on December 17th, 283. So if he was alive in 199... (laughs) We got a Dumbledore situation. Yeah, yeah. So totally unlikely, but there is mention of this Pope Caius having issued a condemnation for one of the Montanist heretics, um, Proculus, in the time of Pope Zephyrinus. Something got really messed up along there. Either they cited the wrong Pope for it, or they have the wrong Caius, or something. Because, ooh, it's it's not likely that he lived from 199 to 283 to start his papacy. He's an 84-year-old pope when he's elected. I'm not buying it in this ancient world of persecution. And since I just cited his election to pope and we know nothing else about it, we can, we can go from here. So, December 17th, 283. Now he is pope. Moving on. Did he immediately have a... Oh, God, what are those called? Where he makes priests and stuff, because they do it around Christmas. Oh, that's true. We actually don't have any numbers for him. Oh, dang. But it would be the perfect time for holy ordination. However, the Liber Pontificalis does tell us that he was doing something similar to this, because they like to attribute a bunch of common sense decrees to people, as we've seen, and According to them, it's apparently Caius that established the order of proper ecclesiastical rank in the church, the positions that Fabian had supposedly created, and... He needs to go over it again. Needs to go over it again and put them in the right order, and then he also determines what was actually required to be a bishop. He decreed that before someone could be ordained as a bishop, they first had to be a porter, a lector, an exorcist, an acolyte, a subdeacon, a deacon, and then a priest. So, okay. Yeah, he put those in order, apparently. I mean, I know what a lector is, but what's a porter? It sounds like a doorman. So the porter is like a originally a servant or a guard posted at the entrance of the building. So, totally right. So you have to be the doorman, and then you have to be the lector, and then you have to be the exorcist, acolyte, subdeacon, deacon, priest, bishop. And of course, like everything that the Liber Pontificalis gives us, this isn't accurate at all. We've seen these roles laid out before, and even though they weren't mandatory for bishops before, I guess, like, it's pretty assumed that it was. Now, what we can say with more certainty is that during the time that Caius was Pope, the church expanded its infrastructure by building new buildings and more churches and, most importantly, new cemeteries oh yeah okay yeah now that the church is actually legally allowed to own land they were able to expand out from the catacombs of calixtus and which though they believe that the catacombs of calixtus could have interred about five hundred thousand people at full capacity was probably starting to feel a bit full there was a lot of death there was persecutions everywhere so just literally everywhere (laughs) Everywhere, for every level, um, if you're still alive, how did you do that? Yeah. Of course, the f- same laws that applied for cemeteries, that they could not be within the walls of Rome like like they were for everyone else. You know, you had to build your cemeteries outside of the city because only the emperor and his family could be buried inside. But the Christians take this and they run with it. So they create new cemeteries on the Via Appia again and the Via Ostiens and the Via Tibertina. So they're going to be everywhere. <laughs> 
Well, good. They need somewhere to put all of those dead bodies. Because, you know, we are not done with persecutions. We are not done with the worst persecution. Mm. I- I'm going to point out that it's called the Diocletian Persecution, so... <laughs> oh, spoilers. But before we get there, and and actually it's not really as relevant here as it will be in the future, but before we get to that kind of horrible, horrible thing, let's talk about heresy! <laughs> Oh, they came back. Yes, there's there's so, so many heretics. So we're going to check in with a couple of our heretics that we've looked at in past episodes. Yeah, what well, I mean, with Eutysian, we didn't, nothing, no heresy talk whatsoever. Yeah, well, I mean, that was a nice change. <laughs> so let's check in with the Novations, because, I mean, they're still around, and they're still continuing to criticize the Catholic Church moral laxity and you know even though this is a more peaceful time for the empire right now and the issue of the lapsi is no longer front and center they're, they're still around they're still being a problem but once again we don't have a strong response from caius about the novationist i would ignore them too yeah i mean things are good why why deal with this they're a thorn in the side of our church but we can ignore them right now and no one's going to care and speaking of heretics that have been ignored for a long time, the Gnostics are still around and kicking in Rome and throughout the empire. So remember these offshoot Christians who believed in the internal knowledge of divinity, which allowed people... Yes. They're all about interpreting for themselves the gospel, that Christ's purpose was to enlighten this knowledge inside of the individual rather than to establish a church. So they're around. Although, by this time, they have been expelled from the church for so long that no one sees them as a threat anymore, and they've kind of subsided. Sort of. They're just self-practitioners, as it were. Doing their own thing. But, when heretic threat levels are low, it's a perfect time for a new one to start rearing its head. And these are the Manichaeans, who were actually an offshoot of the Gnostics. Maybe their threat level's not so low, but... This is a religious movement inspired by a Babylonian man called Manny, and Babylon is modern-day Iran, who considered himself a prophet. And remember, Gnostics absolutely do not subscribe to the Catholicism view that prophets are all done. They believe that prophets are everywhere, and they're the people who had mastered the understanding of that internal divine spark. So this this prophet named Manny, what a lackluster name. Well, I think that's why they went with Manichaeans instead of like Mannyites or something, because at least it gives them, you know, Manny's friends. <laughs> Could you imagine being part of the heresy? Manny and friends. I, whenever I hear the name Manny, I always think of black books. Oh, yeah. And in the first episode, he comes in and he starts like spouting all of this gospel type Zen because he swallows the little book of big thoughts yes. or whatever. So this is Manny in my mind. Carry that with you as we talk about what Manny's about. So oh, no. <laughs> his religious theology was centered around the idea of dualism, or more specifically, dualistic cosmology, which in layman's terms is that eternal struggle between good and evil Light and dark, heaven and hell, spiritual and material. He argued that it was an ongoing and inevitable process that 
all the good and light in the material physical human world was progressively being removed because it needed to be returned to the spiritual world, which was its original source. So everything that is good and wonderful in the world is eventually going to be taken away from us because it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to the celestial realms, give or take. His overall theories are super, super complex and detailed, and we don't really want to do a deep dive in here right now. Yeah, I was going to say, I understand all of those words separately. Well, I mean, it all comes down to this. He, he's he got this idea of this, the world of light ruled by the father of greatness and the world of darkness, which is ruled by the king of darkness, and they are in a dualistic struggle for eternity until everything gets separated and all the light goes to its world and all the dark goes to its world and give or take that's that's kind of what he's about now notably you might have noticed this isn't exactly a christian based form of heresy necessarily it's kind of more theoretical than that and we're not talking about god or jesus or or any of that but as it progresses Manichaeanism will adopt the discussion of Jesus Christ and how he fits into their philosophy. So we're going to have Manny directly claiming to be an apostle of Christ, which will rub the church the wrong way. So how are you also very, very old? So old. <laughs> so old. Um, they're going to be really threatened by this, and we're only briefly touching on it at this moment because it's starting to creep into Rome, and this is going to be a significant rival religious philosophy as time goes on, and it's going to be a favored philosophy by many Roman elite, so... Well, the Romans would like it. They would, and so the Manichaeans are going to have a presence in the empire up until about the 6th century, and in China, they're going to last until like the 13th century. That sounds like a place where they would thrive oh yeah they're all about buddha they're all about jesus they're like yeah prophets everywhere this all fits into dualism so i mean historians will also continue to argue that manichaean influence will actually have an impact on christianity but that is a whole can of worms and way ahead of where we are now so for now the Christian church is not the only religion that is making use of peace and toleration of religion and religious thinking to make inroads, especially with the Romans, and grow their influence. That's pretty much uh, the meat of Caius's papacy. And we can jump back into this discussion about St. Susanna and her supposed ties to Pope Caius. So this legend is mentioned in the Liber Pontificalis, which is almost exclusively sourced from an apocryphal Acts of the Martyrs type document, like when we had Pope Urban and St. Cecilia, so, mm -hmm. you know. The stories are really quite similar, actually, because the story of St. Susanna is that she's a goodly Christian virgin who refuses to marry a pagan relative of the emperor. Okay, well, she, she flat out refused. She didn't, like, marry a man and then go, no, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah, she's she's not about that. And you gotta think here, now, if Caius was related to Diocletian, and he's her uncle, and she's going to marry a relative of Diocletian, maybe she's like, no, I don't want to marry someone I'm related to, so. No thanks. Just a thought. You know, maybe she was just not okay with incest, but 
Either way, she refuses and arrested as a Christian and martyred by beheading in 295. Ah. Standard. Not exposure. Get more creative. <laughs> now, according to the legend that ties Caius to Susanna as her uncle, Caius is the one who baptizes the new converts made by Susanna, as well as by St. Tiburtius, who is another figure in this time of Christian saints and martyrs and since they're all allegedly so closely related, it's thought that maybe Susanna's house and Caius's house were either joined together or that they lived together. Either way, the home Susanna lived in is definitely credited to be owned by those brothers Caius and Gabinus, the latter being Susanna's father. And after Susanna's death, which is roughly similar in time frame to Caius's death, this house does get turned into a home church called the Domus, which would become prominent enough as a place of worship that by the very beginning of the 6th century, it gets mentioned in a Roman synod in 499. This church, which is now known as Santa Susanna, would remain a place of papal interest. I mean, we have Pope Sergius I will have it renovated, and several popes would be pastor of this church before they would become popes, like Leo III, who would go back and rebuild it some more. Now, today this church is known as the Santa Susanna at the Baths of Diocletian, and it is currently a Cistercian nunnery, which is kind of cool. It'd be a neat place to visit. Right? Super cool. Uh, I don't know if it's open to the public, because they didn't say whether it was a convent nunnery or not, where they're sealed in, but... um. They could let us in for a minute. We're the right gender. Yeah. I mean, that would be cool, right? I love going to visit nuns. They're always so cool. They're so fun. <laughs> as far as this goes with being Pope Caius's house, however, this is probably obviously some sort of confusion and amalgamation of the two different Caiuses because the Pope Caius actually has a residence of his own that has been or had been preserved and had a similar story attached to it. Records suggest that the former home of Pope Caius was preserved, and then converted into a church in 1631, and though we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves now, his relics will go there for a time. And there's little chance of this being on the same site as Santa Susanna, because that church would have already existed for 1300 years, and we know where it is, and it still exists, but... The church on the actual site of the actual Pope Caius's home no longer exists because in 1880 it was demolished in order to construct the Ministry of War. All right, the Ministry of War. Oh, and that just oh, that just hurts my soul. I just I can't deal with that. So I need to move on. So when <laughs> don't they... <laughs> dwell, don't dwell. It was so long. You can't fix it. Oh, you, historians will dwell about the destruction of things forever. The Library of Alexandria, we will never get over it. But when they turned it into the Ministry of War, his remains were obviously moved out of the church before it was destroyed and moved to the chapel of the Barberini family, which we can presume they're still there today. Maybe they're in the trash. I mean, it's, it's possible. <laughs> Could you imagine if we had two trash popes? <laughs> I think this is a theme. I mean, I would take it off their hands. <laughs> Do you not want these relics? Well, they're not allowed to sell them anymore, right? So... Are they conmarring these relics? <laughs> this doesn't give me joy. I don't know what Marie Kondo would say about that. 
I think even she would agree that some things you just have to continue to hold on to. I'm just picturing someone like, uh, trash. <laughs> Poor Pope Clement. He got conmarried away. So we've talked about his relics, so um, I guess we should talk about the fact that he's died. He's not still alive. Uh, we get this weird thing with the papal deaths that occurs in the time of the Peace of the Church, where we have, like, apocryphal stories of martyrdom, even though they're in this lovely period of peace. You know, the Positio Episcoporum tells us that he was martyred. In Caius's case, the story is that he was under threat, and therefore he left his home and the church to hide within the catacombs, where he was eventually hunted down and killed, a la Pope Sixtus II. But this doesn't make any sense from the time period, and no current historians or church historians see Caius as a martyr. They've even downgraded his token martyrdom to the status of confessor. So all we know for sure is that he died on April 22nd of 296. However, peace is not going to last in the Empire, and three years after the death of Caius, we do have reports that Diocletian starts to persecute by purging his army of Christian soldiers and going after the Manichaeans by ordering them to be burned to death. Oh. Mm. He likes them a lot less than he likes Christians, so. Manny and friends. <laughs> Manny and friends are getting, I don't know, we, what do we call, we call, be, we've got beheading, we've got noms. What happens when they get cooked? Conflagration? Yes. A congregation of conflagration. Yes. That's perfect. That sounds like a metal band from the 90s. Conflagration? No, Congregation of Conflagration. That's probably like their album. I don't know. I feel like it's the kind of pretentious mouthful that would work perfectly. So, yeah, they're getting burned to death. Uh, Christian soldiers are getting kicked out of the army. And this is going to follow to Christian persecutions starting in 303 when the emperor wanted to go back and enforce the idea of imperial cults and god statuses for himself, and then Gallienus's edict of toleration is going to be broken, so Diocletian persecutions. They're coming. Got too big for his bridges. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, to be fair, the stuff that he was dealing with at the time. Uh, side note, Diocletian was one of the only emperors ever in history to actually willingly retire and all he wanted to do was go grow cabbages so all right you know after burning everybody you want to grow some cabbages that seems logical why not that's the career advancement that i'm going for when i see a dumpster fire happening i'm just gonna be like nope i'm gonna go grow some cabbages <laughs> but anyways Caius was buried in the catacombs of Calixtus, and when it was discovered, when his, when his burial was discovered, they found a sweet bonus. They found his signet ring that he had used to seal his official letters. Oh. This is the first preserved papal ring we have in history. Nice. Now, before you get excited, I looked everywhere around the internet to see if it was still preserved. Nothing came up. Was that Kanmari too? Um, well, okay, so there is a depiction of it on page 261 of Rings of the Finger by George Frederick Coons, which is a book about finger ring lore, but those pages are not available online, and it also gets cited in a book called Finger Ring Lore by William Jones, available on Project Gutenberg, so you can actually 
see that somebody has cited it, so it does exist somewhere. There's just no photos. Okay. Someone's got it. It's not in the trash. Probably, because there's, at least if you can find this book by George Frederick Coons called Rings for the Finger, page 261. Anyone who can do that and then send me a photo, ooh, papal blessings. <laughs> we got any librarians listening? Ooh, that's a good, yeah, yeah. If you are, we will give you extra special bonus po points. The points don't matter. Yeah, they don't amount to anything, but don't tell them that. I gotta be up front. Uh, so he had a ring. It existed. So that's pretty cool. And like we said, remains moved to his church for a while. And then when they destroyed the church, to the chapel of the Barberini family. So that's Caius. And now we need to raid him. Papatum infalium. So he is potentially clarifying the hierarchy of church roles. You know, what positions you have to hit to be a bishop and... What positions you have to hit in a certain order is a thing. He also expands Christian landholding with churches and cemeteries. That's important. Yeah, that one he's going to get some points for. I can't give him anything for the other one. It's just... No. And that's what we have for him. So what do you want to give him? We got a three. Okay. Three is generous. I... I gotta be a little generous with this man. Yeah. And because you are generous with him, I will be less so. So he gets a two from me for... Expanding Christian landholding. No, I'm going to give him a three because he also gets associated with St. Susanna. So there's that church, which is still around. And, you know, he gets a three also because they destroyed his church. It could still be here. So. No, they had to put the war. The ministry of war. Yeah, no. So he's he's getting a three for me. So that's a total of six for Papatum Italian. Fructus prohibitum. Nothing yet. But oh, is it coming? Not for this guy. Oh, not for this guy. No. <laughs> but next week's going to be fun. <laughs> Ooh. So, yeah. Uh, zero. Seculari impactum. He is potentially related to one of the most influential Roman emperors in the history of Rome. I mean, I don't know. Being related to somebody doesn't really help. It doesn't, but I am going to pitch an argument here and we'll see what you think. So we know that coming up in the future, Diocletian is currently emperor. And right now, the little piece of the church is continuing on, which is a good thing. The church is being tolerated right now. It's not going to be until Galerius comes into the picture in 303 that we have Diocletian going after the Christians. So is it possible that being related to the head of the Christian church might have held some of that persecution at bay for a time? Maybe. Like, you know, I can't I can't fight my cousin. It's purely speculative. It's something we have to consider because I'm not going to lie to you, the Diocletian persecutions are going to get so bad. And even though they're called the Diocletian persecutions, it's mostly going to be hilarious. Do we give him a point for potentially keeping things at bay a little bit longer? I, I just, I can't. Okay. I'm going to give him a one for that, and I think that's all he deserves for it. So if you were going to give him one, that would be enough. Two would be too much. So he's just going to get a one because of what if. And he needs a little bit of a score here, so I mean. Does he? A, a little bit. Fossium Sanctus. We have some photos to look at of his face. All right, let's see this face. Okay. This is the first one. This is the one we raid on. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't. I know, right? 
I think he's definitely the best looking Pope man we've had. Yeah, that is... Wow. Mm -hmm. He looks like he knows he's good looking too. It's kind of like that, hey girl. (laughs) He's doing the Ryan Gosling. He's got that sort of, you know, he's he's Caius the Dalmatian. So he's got a little bit of that exotic vibe. He's got a little bit more color in his skin. Even though the Romans would have been very olive themselves. There's something about him that says, I'm a little bit more exotic. Yeah. What do you want to give him based on this? Gosh, that's a real good picture. I know. (laughs) I can give him like an eight. You know what? I think I will actually match you for that because it's decent. Like, it's really clear. Clearly, he was not 84 when he became Pope. (laughs) No. I hadn't considered that until right now. He is a young man. He is a clean, trimmed man. And he doesn't look so upset with the world he's got that swarthy look you like yeah yeah i'm kind of into that so i mean i guess so we're gonna give him an eight each which will give him a total of four for this category which is i can't even make fun of him he's just it's a pretty guy it is and that is the highest score that we've given the most he could score in this category is a five and he's gotten a four for this And the only ones I think who are going to score the fives are the really funny looking dudes. So, yeah, I think he might be in the running for hottest pope. Now, that being said, (laughs) this other image of him, you know, from our bad artists that we always look at. Oh, yeah, that man who has never improved. It's a good thing we've rated and scored already because I don't think that you could not let this affect your score. So it's totally different. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a bulldog. With a tiny hat on. It does look like he's wearing a hat now. Like, the, that tonsure is too, too on the nose. There's nothing to say about this except that it's bad. It's very bad. But that's not it. Because we also have a painting of him in Florence at the Church of San Gaggio in the Via Senese, which was dedicated to him. And the term Gaggio is a corruption of the name Caio. So this is actually the Church of St. Caius. And unfortunately, in 2003, this church that we're going to look at this lovely picture in was planned to be turned into residential council housing. So... A war council? Ugh, it just just kills me. So someone might have this in their residential council housing now. Here it is. The martyrdom of Pope Caius. Well, you don't even get to see his face. Oh yeah, you do. It's on the floor. Oh, his head is off. I yeah. see. There's his head. I couldn't find it for a second. Well, the ki- I mean, the dude is pointing at it. No, he's not. He's barely, he's pointing at a body. He's probably pointing at that red man and whatever he's doing. What's he doing? Oh, it's a sword. He's putting his bloody sword away. He might also be pointing at the guy who's standing there with the spear who's clearly got a belly. It, that's the that's clearly like a a Roman prefect who's wearing armor that's not holding in the gut at all. I didn't. Oh, it's it's supposed to be armor. It's not just a shirtless man. <laughs> no. Um. <laughs> the more I look at this thing, the more I notice like the guy in the background in the blue going, "Oh, <laughs> he's got his hand on his head." Like, oh no. Either that, or he's washing his hair under the eye of Sauron. <laughs> he's very confused. And there's, like, three horses just having a horse party. (laughs) And what's going on with this, guys? Next to the guy doing the O movement, there's a guy wearing a hook on his head. I looked at this painting for a while. I mean, 
but wow. I thought the sword guy was pouring wine. How is he going to get it in there? I don't know. This is a very small cup. It's a very long cup. Like, I have had some long cups. <laughs> it's one of those cups you get in Vegas when you're walking around, you know, and they're yeah. as long as your body. He's there for the beheading. He's got his wine. Oh, he's just like, okay, it's done. Party! Ooh, I'm gonna pour Also, it. are those angels carrying his soul? Is that what we're supposed to be depicting? I mean, I saw the Eye of Sauron when I looked at it, <laughs> but... The Eye of Sauron and several bluebirds. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's, that is what's happening there. Maybe that's what Ma Mr. Blue Man is actually looking at. He's like, oh... <laughs> We've made sense of the nonsense, eventually. Also, is that God by the horses? Oh, <laughs> I mean, he's not even looking at him, though, so. Oh my god, look between Mr. Blue and the man with the hook on his head. There's a tiny little person. There's <laughs> just a face. Oh, there's a peaky face behind Belly Man, too. This is just a peekaboo painting. Who did this? Uh, if you have listened this far and you still haven't found this painting, we are going to post it and um, tell us what you find, because surely we've missed some. This is like a where Wa where's Waldo painting. It totally is. Okay, well that was a journey. <laughs> Speaking of journeys, Tempus Pontificus. <laughs> that's not a journey, that's a time. It's a journey of time. <laughs> so, December 17th, 283 to April 22nd, 296, which is 13. 15 years, so pretty good run. How unlucky. Yeah, so score of 3.25 for that one. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. So, yes, he is a saint, and he has the feast day of April 22nd, which he shares with Pope Soder. Ooh. So they share Earth Day as their feast day although they were both omitted in the 1969 revisions, though they still get mentioned in the Roman Martyrology, and the entry for St. Caius in the Martyrology says, At Rome, in the cemetery of Callistus, on the Via Appia, the burial of St. Caius, Pope, who, fleeing from persecution of Diocletian, died as a confessor of the faith. He is specifically venerated in Venice and Dalmatia, but he's not a patron saint of either of those places. So we can make him a patron saint of something. Oh. Yeah. I don't... Um... He's our good-looking Pope man, so... He's very good-looking. So what should we make him a patron saint of that honors his good looks, since he has very little else? Mm. What is the overarching theme of those hey girl memes? They're usually like... Oh, they're like when you want to say something to make your girlfriend feel good or like... Yeah, they're like, they're all about bringing your lady up. Could we make him the patron saint of love languages? Yes. <laughs> all right. So it is done. Pope Caius the Dalmatian is the patron saint of love languages. Words of affirmation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's all about that. So his total score now is... A 15.25. <laughs> Most of that is for his face. Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely mostly for his face, but that's pretty beefy. I mean, he is, he scored higher than our last two popes. He, he does not beat Dionysius here, but 
pretty good. So now we must ask ourselves, is he papally enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? Has he made an impression on you that is worthy of a papal bull? Look, if I could give him one because he is so swoon-worthy, I absolutely would. <laughs> but that is not the merits of this game. Absolutely isn't. So he would be our beauty pageant winner so far, but that doesn't mean that it's a bull. So I agree with you. And Caius, straight to purgatory. But that is not the end of our episode because, oh boy, do we have... Pope Watch, what is it? Pope Watch recap for you, so. A recap. Oh, some things happened. We have things that happened over the holiday season when we were not recording, and I've put them all together for you, so. Here we go. Pope Watch. It's time for us to look back over the holiday season, mostly. So, the first thing that happened right before the holidays was Pope Francis visited our Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, to celebrate Christmas with him and bring a gift to the retired pontiff. So, mm. yeah, I know. The visit happened at the Mater Ecclesiae Monastery within Vatican City, which is where Benedict currently lives. And it is a visit that Francis has made every year since becoming Pope. It's not a big deal in itself, but there's a reason we're talking about this. Also, none of the reporters that I follow or who posted pictures of this or commented on it, no one said what the gift was, but the Pope men prayed together and chatted briefly. So now after this visit, Chris messaged us on Twitter and asked us, why is it that Benedict is still allowed to wear papal vestments after his retirement? And I promised Chris an answer. So here it is. This is because Benedict is still the Pope Emeritus, which officially means retired, so he has not gone back to being a cardinal, and he doesn't actually hold any position in the church in any active capacity anymore. Like, he is full-on retired. He's, he's not even considered a priest. So, basically, um, when you retire, you don't, you're not demoted. You don't step down. This is also why he hasn't gone back to being Ratzinger, you know, his his previous name, and he's still Benedict, because his service is complete, and it's looked upon as if it's complete. It would be inappropriate for him to go back to being a cardinal, a bishop, or a priest, or to wear those items, because those roles are not for him anymore. But there's there's more to this. Here's the thing about this. The reason that we see Francis and Benedict dressed in pretty much the same fashion has more to do with the fact that Pope Francis dresses down in the most humble versions of papal regalia. Yeah, because Benedict was all flashy. So, so flashy. He was all about papal red shoes, opulent garments, the gold inlaid mozettas. It was just brutal, right? Francis has the right to wear these items. He chooses not to. Benedict no longer has the right to wear those items anymore. He can't get fancy. Yeah, so he doesn't actually he doesn't actually retain the right to wear the papal regalia. The reason they look the same is that they both wear the white cassock, which is the official garb for a retired pope, because it's a symbol of having given up all of that power, all that refinery. You don't you don't have it anymore, so all you get is the simple white cassock. If we had a pope like Benedict now in Francis, 
we would see that difference be really, really stark. But because Francis doesn't buy into all that, they look like they're allowed to wear the same thing. I hope that's a sufficient answer. I mean, it is a little bit more of a, let's let's talk about everything but, but it does kind of deal with why they look the same. Also, on the day before the Christmas visit to Pope Benedict, Pope Francis held his annual congregation of the Roman Curia, during which he addressed the sexual abuse crisis of the church and affirmed his commitment to root out the perpetrators. It's interesting. This is what he said. Let it be clear that before these abominations, the church will spare no effort to do all that is necessary to bring justice whoever has committed such a crime. And he also spoke out directly to the guilty and said, convert and hand yourself over to human justice and prepare for divine justice. The church will never seek to hush up or not take seriously any case. From this point on, he's acknowledging the failure of the church to, to do so in the past, but he doesn't want that to be the message going forward. So it's kind of a big deal. We've never had any Pope figure ever actually address this issue in such a direct way. He's basically saying, you know, hand yourself over or you're going to hell. To like authority authorities, not to him, mm -hmm. to like the police. Human justice. So this is his open and direct message in preparation for the World Bishop Conference in February which he's convened to address this issue specifically. Mm, man, if, if some bishops show up and they're not supposed to be there, there's going to be some problems. Yeah, so um, February's going to be so busy for Pope Watch. Uh, keep your ears peeled. We will be watching this very closely. There was also a whole bunch more that was said on different aspects of the, of the scandal. And if you want to read a great article on this, the Catholic News Service posted a great one that I will put in the show notes. And thanks to Josh McElwee for always being so good at posting these stories right away so I can look at them. And on that note, now that we've kind of covered that, we've kind of alluded to what's coming in February, we are going to take a very brief look at what's in store for Pope Francis in 2019. A year ahead, as it were? A year ahead. There's travel. There's the conference. So here we go. First, there's the World Bishops Conference that I mentioned, which is purely to deal with issues of abuse and child protection, and it's going to happen February 21st to 24th in Rome, where he intends to implement a full policy of zero tolerance. We'll see how that goes. But there's also preparations for the Synod of Bishops that happens in October, and Francis is going to be traveling a lot this year. He is scheduled to visit Panama on January 23rd to 27th for World Youth Day. He's going to Abu Dhabi in February on your birthday. On my birthday? Yeah, he's going to be there on your birthday. Uh, he's in Morocco from March 30th to 31st. Bulgaria and Macedonia, May 5th through 7th. He's speculated to visit several countries in Africa and Madagascar in the summer. And I say, oh, I've always wanted to go there, but be careful because, oh my god, they still have the bubonic plague. Well, he, uh... I have to say this, or it's going to hurt me. Will he bless the rains down in Africa? <laughs> oh, 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 God. He probably will. That, would, that sounds like something he would do. Just, just please, just for us millennials, bless them. Oh, uh, should we send him that in a tweet and see if he would do it? Yes. Excellent. And finally, he's also talking about coming to Japan in 2019. And I just want to say, come in April, because... <laughs> Yes! I'm gonna be there then, and 
<laughs> what cooler thing to do? I don't know. Yeah, no, you're gonna go to Japan, and, and Jordan's gonna be like, let's do Japan things. And mm-hmm. you're gonna be like, no, we're gonna go see the Pope again. <laughs> well, I mean, we have, we already have, like, a very solid itinerary, but, I mean, if Francis is gonna be there... So, that leaves us with thank yous. We have Patreon thank yous to make. We have people who are going to be relieved and absolved of their temporal punishments. We need to say thank you to Henry Ho and Azra Begovic. Thank you so much. Ego te absolvo. And we also need to thank Christopher Polt, who wrote an article for the Society of Classical Studies, where he talked about podcasts of the classical world and he mentioned us so that was super super awesome oh i had forgotten about that that was so long ago what is time anymore it feels like it was so long ago but yeah and we also need to thank the why is that podcast who shouted out to us on their christmas episode and i did not know this and i was behind because i got sick over christmas and I was driving home the other day, and I'm listening, and I'm just, you know, doing my thing, and then all of a sudden, somebody's talking about my show, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's super, super cool. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for that. And thank you to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for everything that they've done for us. Thank you to all of our listeners who are still with us in 2019. Yeah, and um, if you're enjoying us, BuzzFeed is doing that hype train thing, so... Get your votes in. I don't know. Tell them that you like us. Or tell them that you like any podcast. I mean, just show any podcast that you love some love because it will make their day or it would make our day. That'd be pretty cool. I submitted a lot. (laughs) Yes, you, you were all up on there. Yeah, I was. So, I mean, it'd be cool if you, if you want to suggest us, but seriously, just, just show some podcasts some love. Getting featured on BuzzFeed would hugely increase your audience. However you feel about BuzzFeed, you know, it'd be it'd be pretty freaking cool. So some of BuzzFeed's like legit. BuzzFeed breaks some actual news. They're they're pretty legit. Like the the silly stuff is all there to fund the legit stuff. Yeah, I mean I, I just I can't say I have strong opinions because it's not something I'm on very often, but Yeah. You know what? I go there every once in a while. To find out what kind of bread you are? Yeah, I need to know. I have to know what type of bread I am. I need to know what what my um, Mad Max Fury Road name is, except that one doesn't work anymore. (laughs) Of course, you would love that one. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as PontifaxPod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is PontifaxPod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. Thank you, and goodbye. Bye.